this week on the Back Table Podcast. And it may have be of be some benefit to them too, because what if what I've injected on top doesn't get all the way down there? But that's that's basic. It takes under a minute to do. And then depending on where I've done it, how I've done it, where they're from, I'll either follow up with them in five days or seven days. So I'll give it some time. I'm not going to call them the next day or the day afterwards. But usually at a week, I'll give them a phone call. And it's usually a no charge phone call. Like I know, oh my God, urology, no charge. I mean, obviously if insurance allows it, but it's usually a very quick phone call because I've already prepped them up for, okay, if it works, it's this pathway. If it hasn't worked, it's this pathway. So it's a very quick conversation. But the block, I know there's been a lot of published data on it. In these patients with this nerve pain, a block can be almost 90% effective. All we're looking for really is, is there a reduction in pain? We're not looking for a complete resolution. And me, what I'm looking for is those 1% where sometimes a block can make them worse. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Backtable Urology Podcast, your source for all things urology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and at backtable.com. Now, a quick word from our sponsors. Our next partner has a product I use literally every day. I started taking AG1 without any expectations at all. I definitely feel healthier. The The important part for me, uh, I, I personally, I, I like to try a healthy diet from, from what I can. From For example, I, I, I go to a, a local farm to get beef, pork. Yeah. But oh, okay. in terms of the sides, that's the, that's my challenge. Yeah. I'm not of a, a of a of a leaf eater in that sense. Not, not not that many greens, right? And having a product that uh, supplements that or, or or fills that gap or, or that void that I have in my diet, it is great. And I and I I I think my hair is better. I mean, something as stupid oh, okay. as that. I, I'm not sure if it's the, the, the trick. I don't want to promise anything to, to the people out there, but I, I feel good. I've been doing it for yeah, the past well, four it, weeks. I, I, I'm doing it in the mornings. Yeah. The hair looks good today. I mean, you know, it does, there might it be does. something there. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's funny you said that about the, the, the greens because, um, you know, Chris and I were talking about being just kind of like a cheeseburger and fries guy. Uh, I feel like I don't have to worry about, you know, did I eat a salad this week uh, anymore, you know, with the athletic greens. So it, there's definitely that. And, you know, th- uh, I, what I did ask in the beginning, and my wife asked me this before, when she started taking it was, what is this stuff? Like what's in it? And so with one scoop of AG1, you're actually absorbing 75 high quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source, superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. So, um, you know, it, it supposedly helps with gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, with energy, like you said, helps with focus and aging. And now that I'm in my mid-40s, I definitely need some help with, with aging, you know. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash backtable euro, that's backslash Backtable URO. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash backtable URO to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Now, back to the show. This is Jose Ocha Silva as your host this week, and we have the opportunity to have Dr. Jamin Brambat. Dr. Brambat specializes in male infertility, sexual dysfunction, and chronic testicular pain. 
He earned his medical degree at Boston University School of Medicine, then completed residency at University of Tennessee in Memphis. Afterwards, he went to complete a fellowship in robotic microsurgery and infertility from the University of Florida. Currently, he's the director of the Pure Clinic in Orlando with Orlando Health Medical Group. Actually, the Pure Clinic is actually in Clermont, but Orlando area. He's an active in many professional organizations, including Florida Yoga Society, where he was the past president in 2021, part of American Yoga Association and others. He is also the co-founder of nonprofit initiative, Drive for Men Health, which raises awareness of men health. Jamin, welcome to Backtable. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to talk about ball pain with you today, man. As I'm sure your listeners already listened about that. So, so that is exactly what we're going to talk about. Ball pain. Unfortunately, it's one of those topics that you see often in the office and really you don't know what to do or, or, or I guess if there's no tumor, if it's not a see or some obvious pathology, what to do next? No, you're right. It's, it's absolutely frustrating if you look at your clinic schedule or if you look at even the other podcasts you've done at Backtable, you got things about cancer and opioid uh, and you got stents and stones and very little testicular pain or very little things on chronic pelvic pain. It's just like our clinics. Most of us actually try to avoid this because, you know, it's unknown and patients can be a little bit crazy. But hopefully after our conversation today, it's no longer something that you try to avoid and you try to assist and facilitate as best you can. So the balls don't have to suck. And definitely, and that's something I, because most of the time you feel frustrated with these patients. I mean, they, they come to you, they probably already been from doctor to doctor jumping around and nobody... I mean, they do maybe pain medication, everything's normal, go back home. So how do you get involved in testicular pain? So it's interesting you mentioned pain medication, they go back home. I was just listening to your back table podcast on the opiate epidemic and how as urologists, we should be really cognizant of, you know, not prescribing too much and thinking of alternative therapies. You know, this is one of those things where they're, they're usually not seeking drugs. They're usually not seeking pain medication. Yes, out of 100 patients, you may see maybe one or two that may be kind of like searching for that script, but a majority of them are very legit. But the reason when you're seeing them in your office and they're so anxious and they're so stressed out and they seem so overwhelming is because you're probably the number second, third, fourth, fourth doctor they've seen. On average, patients have seen about seven healthcare professionals before you know they get something done with them. In our office, we've seen over 8,000 plus men with some degree of testicular pain or groin pain or pelvic pain. So we have a lot of experience, but we can also tell that a lot of these patients, they're not really looking for pain meds. They're not really looking for surgery. What they're really looking for is just someone to listen. And that can be hard when we have busy clinics, but I think it, it is something that we can definitely do a better job of. Now, you mentioned how I got into ball pain. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I was trying to avoid that question. <laughs> no, no, I'm just kidding. So as you asked like how I got into the whole testicular pain realm, you know, I got to give kudos to my fellowship director. Then he was my partner and my mentor, Dr. Sejo Pericotl. So Dr. P, as we like to call him, actually did a lot of the pioneering studies on testicular pain. There was some things that we had to offer patients. There was some research, but no urologist was really focusing hours and hours on research. So Dr. P, when he kind of finished his fellowships, he kind of really took a deep dive into testicular pain and trying to help these people. I was fortunate to meet him when I was a resident and then I got to know him and then I joined him for a fellowship for a year and the rest is history. Like I kind of fell in love with what he was doing and what we were able to do for patients. And then we became partners and we were together for almost eight years 
And, you know, that's how we became testicular pain experts. That's how I became experts because he really took a chance and took a risk on the whole thing. What's interesting is, and you went to the AUA, right? So he's, he, he gave a presentation at the AUA like way long ago, like before I even started my fellowship. So that's almost 10 years ago. So probably it's the first time that I saw actually somebody talking about testicular pain and said, they do what? I mean, because exactly. yeah, it was nobody. Yeah. And back then, he, there was so much backlash, like, what? What are you doing? This is crazy. And you go to the AOA this year, every third talk is about like, you know, either mental health or physical health or pain or being able to help these patients. So the dynamic has changed. And I think people in our field have definitely embraced some of these kind of anxiety, personally anxiety provoking diagnoses. And yeah, and like you said, I mean, you mentioned that those patients come to the office uh, frustrated, they they. All the old previous urologists, everybody say, hey, everything's normal, don't worry. I mean, they, they think they're crazy at some point because they're, they're making it up. So most of these patients that go to your office, are they referred by other urologists? Are they just looking for, for options? Are these like naive patients that they haven't seen on other urologists? Or what's the most common patient that you see? I think the referral pattern is definitely equally divided. I would say, yes, I do have a stream of patients that I refer to to us specifically because they know that, you know, we deal with these patients. But we live in a very Dr. Google tech savvy world now. So there are patients that reach out to us, whether it's on my personal social media, which I try to avoid, but, you know, either through our website or sending us a message or reaching out. And what's interesting is a lot of the direct connections that are made to us, they usually start off with, can you help me? It's kind of like, oh, you know, that's, you, you just take the guards down when that's how they start off with, hey, can you help me? I've been through this, this, this. And so when we get these messages, obviously we try to get them in as best we can. Yes, we're based here in Central Florida, but at the same time, you know, with virtual care, we are able to do virtual things. But, you know, obviously when it's something that's procedure driven, people have to come down. But we, I think a lot of what I do is just talking and going over things. And I probably don't operate on every patient. I say pay me 50% need an operation. But yeah, they come from, they come from everywhere. I don't know how they find us sometimes, but they come from everywhere. I'm in the hospital system next to you guys and the word is out that you're over there. So we're sending all of these patients over there. I mean, it's unfortunate that most of the time we don't know what to do. And like you said, it's some of the time it's, it's listening. I mean, we're seeing 45, 50 patients in the office and 20 minutes sometimes is too much for that evaluation, which is unfortunate. The, Jose, the way I look at it is like, you know, when we like, let's say have someone with prostate cancer, we do the initial screening, we do the TSA, we do the exams, we do the biopsy, we diagnose them, and then we know our limits and then we send them off to a specialist. I think we should think about these patients with chronic pain of some sort the same way. Like we can all do the basics for these patients. I know we'll talk about the algorithm later, but I think what happens is we don't even get to the history. We definitely don't get to the physical and then boom, refer out. But I think we can, if we're able to do the basics, then I think we can start that trust process that we're trying to regain in these patients much quicker. So it makes your job easier and even makes our job easier. What's really awesome here in Central Florida, you got two ball pain specialists now. So Dr. Pericotto's on his own right down the street from us, still in Central Florida. He has his own private practice. And then, you know, I'm with the hospital employed system. So the number of people doing this is growing. And there's like about seven fellows that have been under Dr. Pericotto's wing. So, you know, there's definitely a lot more places that people can go to find help. It's just, you got to know about it and you got to sometimes search for it on your own. And hopefully after this podcast, people will start, like, like you said, I mean, do it as a team and do at least the initial workup and give some reassurance to that patient. Hey, you're, you're on the right track and go from there. 
So for you, what would be the initial evaluation on testicular pain? That patient that goes to your office, I mean, of course, the ultrasound, but what else would you be doing in, in, in that for initial visit? So before I get to the whole algorithm, let me just say this because sometimes I'll forget. Is like, I think every physician out there, every urologist or anyone seeing these patients, you got to examine the patient. So I want to really touch on that. I would say out of one out of every six patients I see has a hernia. And I'm not an expert at diagnosing hernias, but they have a hernia or something else. And that, unfortunately, you can only find on exam and knowing how to do that exam. So kind of going back to the basics of residency is very important in these patients. But to go over our workup. So with all the research that's been done and the patients, like we have a very structured algorithm. So what I tell my patients is every, or when we talk to physicians that want to kind of help out in their office when they see these patients is every patient is going to have a different story, but the structure to the algorithm is based on our experience. And we really stick to that, um, especially the first three tiers when it comes to you know, advanced evaluation and initial management. So yes, all of our patients get a history, get a physical. We look at what medications they're on. In your history, what I think it's very important is kind of find three things in their quality of life that we can document. Because what we're going to do is like try to figure out, go back to those three things to remind them, okay, you are better in this regard. Because what sometimes happens to these patients, they're feeling better from A, B, and C, and now they're like, oh, wait, wait, but what, when I do this, so we always make sure in the history you get as much detail, but try to help them focus. So I always ask them, hey, what are the three things that make your pain worse? And then I ask them, what are the three things that you would love to do again? And sometimes they have seven things, but I make them focus on the three things. So the history, the physical, evaluate for hernias, varicoceles, other abnormalities. But I would say beyond that, all of our patients. Now, you know, some people may have already had this done. Some people may need it. Every patient gets a CAT scan. Because most of these patients do have referred pain, so up the abdomen or in the groin. So we have justification to get the imaging. I would say about 10% of patients, we find either kidney stones or blockages or something weird inside their abdomen that could be that, could be the referred cause of pain. So every patient gets imaging-wise a CAT scan, and every patient gets a scrotal ultrasound. If they're seeing me after suffering with this for a long time, I usually get one. If they haven't had one within a year, I get one. If they've had one within the past year, I'm not going to repeat it. So that's my basic imaging. Now, when it comes to lab work, I think going to all these conferences that we go to has really evolved what I do for lab work. And I actually definitely ask them their sexual history, libido, but I also, also try to get like basic hormones on these guys because sometimes their inability to cope with either pain or life stressors could be things like low testosterone. So I try to do that at the same time, but that's an optional thing. But the basics is really getting that imaging, the exam, and the history when it comes to the initial evaluation for these patients. And in this patient's how do you approach referred pain? How do you sell in the patient that this might be referred pain and not, because they always say, no, but I feel it there. How do you talk about, I mean, that, that topic that, hey, I mean, it's, it's not in your mind, it is real, but it might not be what you think it is. Yeah, so th that is a very tough conversation, right? Because referred to them sounds like, oh my God, they think I'm crazy. And I do think some of the crazy is the healthcare system making them crazy because then they get anxiety and PTSD from their experiences. So I think some of that is self-induced as well. But how do you tell about referred pain? The way I kind of describe it is like, listen, all the nerves come from the back, but it's very difficult, even if it's a back issue or some strain in there to get someone to operate on that. But then we know there's different branches. We know based on our research and anatomic dissections that we've done on cadavers, pathologic evaluations we've done on actually cords of the testicle. We know that patients with chronic pain definitely have something called Wallerian degeneration. Now, not all of them do, but a higher percentage, significant higher percentage. So we know there's like, it's really hot in that cord. So 
telling them is like, my focus is just the nerves that go down to the testicle and the groin area. I'm not going to be able to get everything. And as long as I know based on imaging that there's really nothing anatomic or physical or surgical causing the pain, then I know it's some referred pain. So, hey, I'm just going to focus on these nerves. And when you kind of set that precedence with them, like, okay, we're just going to focus on these nerves. What's towards the end? I think they're much happier. You know, the first thing I usually say to these patients is, listen, I can give you 100% of our team's effort, but I can't guarantee anything. So zero guarantee. So I think having those initial expectations, the second thing I say is I don't give pain medication. If we do a surgery or procedure and it's indicated, we will write one script and only one script. But beyond that, I do not refill anything. I honestly don't even prescribe gabapentin or some of the other alternative therapies for nerve or pain. I say, I'm purely here to offer you surgical options based on my experience. So you set the right expectations. You do the trust process by listening to them, doing the exam and the alternate and getting the imaging. And I think that sets you up for kind of success, whether you want to continue from there, that's up to you, or you want to kind of send them elsewhere, that's also up to you. And after you do the ultrasound of the testicle, a lot of the time there's multiple findings and the patient, I mean, there's might have a one millimeter cyst and they say, oh, I have a cyst. It might have been in the other testicle, but they come already with expectation there's something causing that and it's something physical that it was read on the ultrasound. Do you tell them about the nerves? Also, it's a matter of teaching them what really you're looking for in the ultrasound? You're absolutely right. I just saw a patient today as a four millimeter cyst. I think it's like testicular and he has another one in epididymis and that's, that's what he thinks is the pain. So yeah, it is a very, you don't want to discount it, but you know, kind of look at it, explain to them, hey, you never want to say hundreds, like extremes, like this does definitely doesn't cause this, this doesn't cause this. Hey, you know, you have this, but at the same time, like, you know, it could, but you know, it can't. And you want to kind of be very vague. You want to kind of like, like legal political talk, right? So, because the second you paint an extreme, they go, you know, their mind goes like, whoa, like, you know, he thinks I'm crazy. But I think paying the right expectations, like, yeah, this could cause it, but it's probably more a nerve thing. So that's where like the next step in the evaluation comes in. And this is what I hope all of us urologists at least can do at a basic level. Because this is, I think, where you can really set these guys up for success. And if you don't like doing this and you can send them to a pain management doctor, do it. But I think as urologists, as pelvic surgeons, this is something basic we do. And that is a spermatic cord block. It's a nerve injection. Like it's so easy to do, but I would say only like 10% of my patients have ever had it done or been offered it. And it's sad to see that, you know, they were referred to pain management to do it. And then they ended up getting 10 other things. <laughs> I think at a basic level, I think the biggest service we can do is as long as there's nothing else, at least offer them a block. A block is so simple to do. It's so safe to do. And within a day or two of them getting the block, you would know, okay, bam, this is definitely a nerve related thing. And where we do the block, there's different ways of doing it. But I think if you at a base, you can do something by putting numbing medication there. I think we're going to be really able to help that whole diagnosis process. Walk us through, how do you do the block? So our patients often have a lot of pain and they've had a lot of PTSD. So we do do our blocks under some kind of sedation, whether it's nitrous oxide in our office or if they want to go completely to sleep, that's fine. Now it may seem a little extreme, but a lot of our patients, we've looked back, like a lot of their PTSD has come from just an exam or like an injection or trauma or some sort. But you could also do it with the patient awake if they're comfortable doing it. I do do a fair share now just in the office, especially when they're traveling. It's hard to coordinate everything. But regardless of the sedation tactic, a spermatic cord block, essentially, first of all, what do we mix? So every block is different. Um, when I have, when I'm doing it, when I have the availability of having something like Expro, which is a long-acting anesthetic, we'll mix Expro with Marcane. 
That's all I'll inject. The biggest mistake people make out there is they inject too little. So what I've learned from our experiences, you want to inject a lot of this stuff in there because you want to get it as deep into the crevices and to the small areas as best you can. When you're just injecting like 5 cc, 6 cc, it's not going to go anywhere. So most of our blocks are 30 cc's in volume. Um, obviously, the mixture can change based on where I am or what the patient wants, can afford to do. But my preference is Expirel and Marcane. But if it's in the office where you want to be a little bit more cost effective, then you can use lidocaine and marcaine at the same time. But the key is we often infuse four milligrams of Decatron steroid in there. So you get an enhanced anti-inflammatory effect when we're doing the block. So all of our cocktails have about 30 cc's and we mix some long acting, something short acting, and then we add the steroid in there. The block, it's hard to describe verbally here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but <laughs> I put you the spot. <laughs> essentially, in, and uh, some, this may kind of like make some people like crevice here, but you want to get as high up into the cord as you can. So you want to be able to get right where the cord comes out of the kind of the inguinal canal. So what we do is we take a lot of the scrotal skin and then we put our finger all the way up where we can feel the canal. And then I keep my finger right on the canal and I protect the cord underneath my hands. And then I basically go to the right and the left of the patient. And that's if you're having general pain. Now, what I will do, and this is more for their psychosocial addition, is I'll say, okay, where is your pain like the most? Like, so if they think it's a specific spot in the skin or near a cyst, I'll keep five cc's of it and inject it directly targeted. So they feel like, okay, man, it's going there. And it may be, be some benefit to them too, because what if what I've injected on top doesn't get all the way down there? But that's that's basic. It takes under a minute to do. And then depending on where I've done it, how I've done it, where they're from, I'll either follow up with them in five days or seven days. So I'll give it some time. I'm not going to call them the next day or the day afterwards, but usually at a week, I'll give them a phone call. And it's usually a no charge phone call. Like I know, oh my God, urology, no charge. I mean, obviously if insurance allows it, but it's usually a very quick phone call because I've already prepped them up for, okay, if it works, it's this pathway. If it hasn't worked, it's this pathway. So it's a very quick conversation. But the block, I know there's been a lot of published data on it, in these patients with this nerve pain, a block can be almost 90% effective. All we're looking for really is, is there a reduction in pain? We're not looking for a complete resolution. And me, what I'm looking for is those 1% where sometimes a block can make them worse. So as a last patient, I want to do something extreme on. So it's diagnostic and therapeutic. And in those patients that they say it works, how long does it last? So depending on what, what, what we're injecting, the Expirel, when we add the Expirel, it should be about three to four days. When we're doing the lidocaine marcaine, it's maybe a day or two days. But dude, like you'd be surprised. Like, you know, sometimes all we do is a simple block and they have no pain forever. So we do all sometimes hit the jackpot. I don't know if we're resetting the nerves. So it's curative. <laughs> you know, maybe it's some psychosocial component. And I got some guys that are like high level, either professional athletes or executives that I just do a block on them as needed, like maybe once a year, like they have a flare up. But then if they're looking for something more definitive, then our next go-to is generally something called a neurolysis. So neurolysis, the way I describe the patients is kind of like a nerve dividing or nerve stripping. But for us, it's essentially knowing the anatomy of the cord and knowing where those nerves are and kind of ligating and dividing that tissue. So you're basically cutting off the signal to the testicle. And those we will do robotic and microscopic. Absolutely. So the robot is purely a substitute for a microscope. Okay. okay. So if you have a microscope, you can do it that way. If you want to do it with a robot, you can do it that way. And there's actually been studies published looking at the cost of both. And they found that the cost actually comes out to be the same at the end of the day when you look at all the different supplies and assistance and everything needed. So 
I hate saying the word robot. You said that's why I said because I do feel like sometimes in our feel like, oh man, they use a robot. Oh my God, it's marketing. It's a gimmick, blah, blah, blah. Like that's what they said about kidneys and prostate. So I always tell, I even, I'm honest with my patients too, like, because they come to, oh man, you're going to use a robot. You're going to turn a machine and it's going to fix me. I'm like, no, no, no. The robot is just a tool. It doesn't make your outcomes better. It doesn't make your outcomes worse. It's something I use in the operating room to get you the best treatment and outcome possible. But yes, it can be done both. Uh, either way, you need something that's microsurgical because the tissue in there is very, very fine. So you want to be able to cut and divide as much tissue as you can. And for these patients that, that, that do improve, or let's say that is, you mentioned athletes, if it's really with movement, I mean, when does a muscle is part of this equation and the role of physical therapy in these patients? So you bring up a great question. I'm glad you did because people are going to think I'm just knife happy here. So all of our patients, whether we're seeing them naive or if they've seen some other people and they haven't had thing, then we maximize everything medical. So antibiotics, if we think it's some kind of infectious process or anti-inflammatories for at least 30 days to 90 days in combination with something else, if it's if we think it's more nerve related, if it's muscular, or even if I don't think it's muscular, like I do tell all our patients, hey, listen, we can do physical therapy. The problem with physical therapy is you need someone that's like an expert in some places don't have experts in that field. Like if you kind of watch how the therapy is done on the groin, it may seem like, um, you know, X-rated film sometimes, but it's a very professional, <laughs> professional therapy that's done. And yes, there's tons of research that shows it's effective. I recommend that. I recommend acupuncture to these patients. I recommend stretching, yoga, weight loss if they're overweight. So yes, we definitely go through all these things as best we can. Because it's not chronic until it's at least three months. But even if it's been past three months and there's certain things that haven't been tried, we absolutely will try them beforehand. But in my experience, like the stuff doesn't work as well. And maybe it's just, I just see the worst of the worst when it comes to these patients. But yes. So you mentioned me very, so when does musculoskeletal come into play? What's really awesome is I think it was a couple of years ago, there was some abstract or something that talked about the use of MRI. And I've actually integrated MRI into a lot of my work up now as well. So what I do, because I've talked to the doctors that manage the teams here in Central Florida, like, what do you do for your athletes? Like, you know, how do you look at musculoskeletal things? I talked to the radiologist, what's the best form of imaging? It's actually very easy. We already order MRI of the prostate. Those are essentially MRI pelvises, but it's essentially an MRI of the pelvis. And all you have to do to get it done right is just put MSK, MSK read, so musculoskeletal read. So there's a certain way, I still don't understand this, that's why I'm not a radiologist, but there's a way to do the scanning and looking where they look at a lot of things. So yes, we found like, you know, ligament issues and tears and we found like micro fractures. And so in those patients, you know, then it takes a team approach. So if I find a hernia, we consult one of the general surgeons like, hey, can we do something together? Or you fix hernia first. When it's something like this, I send them to whatever the issue may be as a specialist in that to have the patient evaluate it. But it's usually, you know, they usually come back to us afterwards. So, <laughs> so you, you mentioned about medication. I mean, an anti-inflammatory for 30 days. What type of, med of anti-inflammatory are you using? So I usually like meloxicam, Mobic, and they can always take ibuprofen as well. But meloxicam, Mobic is a lot, I think, has a lot better safety profile. So 7.5 is a very mild dose. So it goes up to 15 milligrams. So I usually just put them on Mobic 7.5 and I tell them, hey, if you're taking any of the anti-inflammatory, you can stop it. What I will do for some of my most severe patients is actually put them on a medrol dose pack the first time I meet them. Like, okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going to try to attack everything as best we can. As if you're coming to the emergency room, 
with a broken back. You know, we're going to say you have a broken ball. So I'll start them on a medrol dose pack. I'll start them on meloxicam and plus or minus antibiotics. Now, this is a little bit controversial because antibiotics we know are more for infectious. But, you know, knowing our patients with prostatitis and other things, like sometimes giving them a short course of it as if it's a prostatitis or some kind of itis, I think it does help the inflammatory process. Now, I know there's a lot of research going on on this topic. I don't always prescribe antibiotics, especially since one of the most common ones we prescribe is a black box warning. But usually it's some kind of pulse dose steroids if they're severe when they come see me. And then we'll try the meloxicam. And if that doesn't work, if I want to add something else, I may adventure into gabapentin or Lyrica. But I'll usually talk to their primary care doctors and kind of take a joint effort on that. And for patients, for example, I mean, you're doing a physical exam, you palpate the epidemic and it's tender. Or at least they feel it tender. I mean, a physical exam for you, you essentially normal, but they felt something. Those patients, no history of prostatitis, nothing like that. In those patients, do you think antibiotics might work? I mean, or, or how do you decide which patient gets antibiotics, which one doesn't? And which antibiotic do you use? So, you know, that's, that's a really, there's what I should say on this podcast and there's what I do in the office, right? So sometimes we're afraid to kind of, you know, say what we're really doing. But to be honest with you, if they do have that like really tender, you know, epididymis, I will put them on antibiotics. But obviously, yes, I'll still do the urinary, you know, the urinary workup and check for STDs and all these other things. But I usually will. And it's usually for about 30 days. I used to do Cipro, but now there's a lot of resistance. It's a black box warning. My go-to right now is Bactrim. Um, if they have some kind of allergy to it, I'll look into some other things. But something I've been starting to experiment with as well is this is pure experimentation because I'm trying to see what works. Is just going for something like Ceftonir, which we give like a lot of our implant patients. It's like the strongest. Now, I don't want to be part of the resistance program, but I may just try Ceftonir. But what I sometimes do with these patients is like, and especially the naive patients, I'm like, listen, let's try antibiotics for a week or two. And then you do the steroids. And then you do the anti-inflammatories. We'll kind of write down for them that, yes, you can start everything at the same time, but we're going to do like a stage approach. Kind of like how I manage my overactive bladder patients now. I give them two different scripts, two weeks here, two weeks here. Let's see what works. Come see me back in a month. So I've kind of tried to figure out how can I maximize what I want to test out that that may require some finesse in terms of how we're telling them to do it. And that depends more or less in the history, physical exam, you go by, by that. So for, for example, I, I, today I saw this patient, only testicular pain when they ejaculate. And I mean, the way they describe it, it's like the, the testicle is going up. So you say, well, maybe it's just the core, the, the muscle, everything tighter when you have ejaculation. How do you tackle those patients? What do the, I mean, muscle relaxer works in those patients? Because I had patients that sometimes it works, most of the time it doesn't. So you mentioned muscle relaxants. Like I haven't really mentioned that because I think people can get hooked on those two, like flexural and stuff. Like I, oh, I sometimes have back pain, I take it. So I usually, you can try it. But in that case, I would usually like do a block with the steroid and then say, hey, go ejaculate, have sex, you know, that night or the next day. So I like, I'd rather test it out that way than put them on something that's going to, you know, make them high, like. At least that's what happened to me when I take Flexrol for my back. So, uh, but, you know, I just kind of figure out a different way to test it. But, you know, that patient, I would make sure they have an vasectomy. I also find a way to kind of take a deep dive and have any sexual abuse in the past. Now, I know we don't have time to talk about that, but like I do do a really, I try somehow to, after we build trust, kind of get into that department because you'd be surprised how many people, you know, sexual abuse has led to some of this, the, this sensation of pain that they're having. 
If they've had a vasectomy, it's one pathway. Most of them, they have it. What's really interesting for this is I usually will start try to put them on Flomax for a month. And I know there's some stuff out there that shows that that can help with ejaculatory dysfunction, pain. And I try it. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't work. But what I've found is these patients often have something called retractile testicles. So they just have a very spasmodic cremasteric muscle. It's really hard to assess for. Sometimes, you know, you can kind of shake the side of the thigh and, you know, see if it's reflexive. But a lot of these patients, if you kind of look at them with a close eye, you'll see sometimes their testicle just rides a little bit higher up in the balls. And they're just very, very sensitive to that touch and even like your hand moving through. So then I ask him like, hey, when you're having this pain, does your testicle kind of ride higher up? And I would say a large percentage say, yeah, it does. And so then it's like, okay, well, there's something mechanical. These guys do really good with the neurolysis because the neurolysis, since all I'm doing is cutting off the cremasteric, that's where 80% of the nerves are and all the branches that go down into that area. So when I can keep that testicle down, a lot of these patients do really, really well because yes, I'm doing the nerves, but I'm also cutting off those reflexive muscles at the same time. So definitely good to know because I do have seen those patients but really know, don't know how to treat them. And you're in the office and just by they pulling down the pants, it's already up in the pelvic area. I mean, it's, it's, like, it's like it's trying to hide from you. So good to know that there is a treatment. So you're going to see instead of just saying ball pain, say, do this. Or at least evaluate for this. I'm going to sound intelligent now. Or if you have questions, you can go to our website, myballshurt.com. We actually yeah, yeah. own that domain name. So, <laughs> so Yamin, I, I wanted to also talk about, you also do infertility, you do multiple things. I want to talk about varicose seals. And I don't know, at least in, in Central Florida, we see a lot of Hispanic population. And for some reason, I mean, I would say most of my patients from Latin or his South America, they always talk about varicose seals. And, and most of them either have had varicose seals in the past and their, their brother that had the varicose seal, and they all had the surgeries, but none of them actually say, hey, well, I had problems with infertility, just maybe some pain, and then it came back the pain. So, so they never got cured. Uh, dude, dude, yeah. you're, I can't believe you just said that because it's been something I've been thinking about in my head because I do see a lot of Hispanic patients, Puerto Rico or you know South America, or they, they live here now. And I'm like, they've all had varicose seal evaluation. And you're absolutely right. I'm like, yeah. It doesn't make any sense to me whether they even had varicose seals. And a lot of the times they still have the varicose seal. And they have the pain. They have both. They have both. Yeah. So in terms, I mean, what's your approach with varicose seal? When do you do surgery? Because when I was training, I mean, it was fertility issues. When you were pediatrics, you would measure the testicle. If one was didn't grow as much, then you do, do it. Uh, definitely no grade ones, maybe grade two, grade three. So how do you go from there? So, you know, obviously as urologists, you know, we kind of know that varicoseals really don't cause pain. But, you know, when they are the grade two and three, I mean, that's a lot of pressure and weight in that area of the body. So, you know, we feel like the stretching sensation can either irritate nerves or just that pressure, that extra weight can cause some fatigue to those nerves and those areas, and that can lead to the discomfort and the pain. But I never just fix varicoseals. So if it's a varicoseal, I never say that's the cause of pain. The evaluation, as I mentioned earlier, is still the same. So we would start off with a cord block. Now, obviously, if they have high-grade varicoseals, very careful not to puncture them. So you may consider doing the block under ultrasound guidance or something. But if I am going to do that evaluation, they do improve, which actually a lot of these patients do with the block, then what we're going to do is a dual procedure. So I'm not fixing the varicoseals for infertility or for testosterone issues or whatnot. 
I really, when I go in there, I'm going to kind of take care of the potential cause of the problem for the pain. So I'll do the neurolysis and then we'll do the varicoselectomy at the same time. So we're trying to go in there and do as much as we can. And those patients actually do do fairly well. And in terms of the varicocele, I mean, I remember, again, in training, some will, will do just do ligation. So the, the, the removal, the cutting, a big churn of it. What do you do? So I do this, you know, the standard subinguinal incision, and I actually do go ahead and tie off all the veins uh, with silk suture and then divide them as best I can. So I know some people use clips, some people still, I don't know why they do it intra-abdominal, like. <laughs> oh, the reason that you do intra-abdominal is to repair the hydrocele eventually. So, 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 so you get that extra, extra surgery in the future. I'm surprised how many patients I see that have had, you know, I think IR embolization of arc seals. Yeah, that's, there's very good data, you know, good science. But when a patient comes in with pain, I try to dissuade them from IR embolization because I don't think they've got something permanent inside of them. So yes, if, if I do this stuff and they still have veins and they're obsessed with them, we'll do it. But usually, you know, just, just a heads up, like, I think if you're a urologist out there and you see a patient with varicoceles, whether it's for pain or infertility, I would say definitely the first thing you mentioned is, hey, surgical management of this is, is the better option. There's definitely a role for IR embolization, but I think it's, you know, I don't want to get in trouble here, but I think uh, urologists should uh, refer to urologists for this purpose as best we can, as our resources may be available in our area. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, let's just leave it at that. But yeah, so yeah, so I think we we should take care of each other. And definitely if you don't, I mean, if you're doing these procedures down the street, there's no reason to try to do something else. Really, especially if it's for a patient with pain, like I think getting that advanced evaluation is very important because I only mention this because there's patients that are obsessed with like the coils that are inside them. They see them on CAT scan and they're read in the CAT scan. And then they want me to do like an abdominal expiration. I'm like, oh my gosh, like, uh. so it does kind of complicate things sometimes because they get obsessed with these things. So, yeah, I mean, I think we covered most points. I guess the, 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 the important part is talking to the patient, setting up expectations, because like we talk about those, these small things that they find on ultrasound and they think that that's the, the cause of the pain. Definitely don't, don't, don't say that it, like you mentioned, like that's not it but just try to put it very vague that most likely something else. If you're in the middle of nowhere and they're obsessed with like a cyst and it's a reasonable size cyst, there's no harm in like removing it for them. Like I know sometimes we're like, whoa, like we shouldn't be doing that. There's no science behind it. But like sometimes these patients just want some help. And if they're obsessed with that point and there's nothing wrong with going and removing a, a cyst, you know, I'm not saying do it all the time, obviously the appropriate evaluation, but sometimes this is something anatomical that you can actually feel like, you know, it's okay to try, especially because it's hard to get these patients elsewhere, but set the expectation. If this doesn't work, then you're going somewhere else. You know, I'll at least do this basic thing for you. One thing I did want to say is when I do see patients with varicoceles plus or minus pain, I do kind of get a semen analysis on them and hormones on them for sure, even if they're not thinking about fertility, because there's complications with procedures that we do, right? So what if you lose your testicle or something? We haven't lost a testicle in over nine years, but, you know, I want to make sure that we know as much information as we can before I put a knife in them. So, yeah, I mean, I wanted to talk about, I mean, you, you do multiple stuff. You, you're not just a, a ball paying guy. You do a lot, of, a lot of branding, a lot of things outside of your office. And I want to talk about the, the, the Drive for Men initiative. I remember a long time ago, I, I saw it in Facebook once. So can you talk about it and, and what it is? Yeah, so Drive for Men's Health, you know, was, was something really cool. So this was Dr. Pericotl and I, when we were partners, you know, we 
got very frustrated with how much we could do just in our office. So you could see 30 patients, 40 patients operating eight people a day. And we wanted to do something more broader. It was also our experience with these patients that come in with this pain, because there's like incidents of 100,000 men a year that have some kind of pain in their pelvis or their testicle. And we also saw that even us as dudes, like we really don't communicate well, don't engage healthcare as best we should. So, you know, we had this light bulb moment and that was when he actually got a Tesla. So now every, every Tom, Dick and Harry has a Tesla now or has one on order and is waiting a year for it. But this is when Teslas were like very rare. So what we found was when he was driving around his car that all these guys would be interested in the car. And then they would ask him like, hey, what do you do for a living? Urology. And then they would open up about a million things. And it's not always erection. They talk about the heart, the GI, like, oh yeah, you're a doctor. So that's when the light bulb went off is what can we do to incorporate the car and get men to start talking about their health? So two crazy guys that we are, we got buying with the team and we drove over 24 hours from Florida to New York the first year to this initiative called the Drive for Men. So we had, we just went like it was, it was crazy, but they got so much traction that the next year we went even crazier, 6,000 miles over 10 days. And then we did this for almost seven years straight. We took it global to Dubai and India and other places. And what we found was like, I don't want to take all the credit for it, but I think it made talking about men's health and getting men talking kind of sexy in a way. And it gave people a way to kind of have that conversation. Let's talk about the car. And we actually did these surveys every single year where we kind of found the psyche of men. So men actually know more about their cars and their health. And then we found the top three excuses that men have. So we would tailor our messages every single year based on this survey we did surveying men about like, you know, what doesn't get you engaged with the healthcare system. So we did a lot, man. We drove across and it was a big on the ground campaign, social media campaign. We, you know, did all this media and but met thousands of men. And what's really cool to see then is like universities had all these men's health initiatives and they used the car as an analogy. And, you know, that that kind of positive message perpetuated and propagated and I think it's cool. I think we got to get men talking more. And actually me and Sidra went on our, our own health journeys. We lost 50 pounds because the first year we did it, we looked at our pictures. We're like, dude, we're like, we don't even fit into a camera. Like we're, we were, we were wow. overweight. So then we made ourselves as role models because we lost the weight and kind of showed we were one vulnerable, like we showed our struggles live. And I think, I think men and their partners kind of really resonated with that. So it's a cool initiative. It's kind of on hold right now with COVID and all the changes and, but the spirit still lives on through other people that are kind of continuing the Get Men Healthier initiative. Do you think it's going to come back or, or it's a nice memory? Well, um, you never know, man. You never know, you <laughs> I don't, never know. I don't think, it may not come back in its true form, but there's definitely going to be an evolution in the whole process. And, you know, just look at the urologists on social media, like you at the AUA, you know, we have like social media forums. Yeah. So like back then, not many of us were engaging people beyond just our offices. And now we've got like a whole like all these troops on the ground on social media. And I, I'm very proud that urology as a profession has remained very professional on social media, at least the people I follow. So is there a need just because there's a need? I don't think so anymore. I think a lot more of us have engaged the general population. So I think, again, I think it is going to come back in some form. I just don't know when. But thank you to all the other urologists out there pushing the effort, not just for men's health, but just general health awareness overall. Well, Yamin, any other thought, any other comments that you want to add? This has been great, and I think the general urologist audience have a good feel of what will be the next step, how to talk to these patients, because probably that's one of the most important things, the part of talking to them. Yeah, I think talking to them is great. 
But at the same time, and I think you were at the Florida Urologic Society, I gave a talk on like, you know, the patient experience. I think we can do a much better job of the entire experience. And the experience doesn't start when we walk into the office. I mean, walk into the room where the patient has been sitting. I think the experience, and when you see them and they're rushed or they've been waiting an hour or two, like they're already stressed out. So then you're seeing a stressed out patient with pain. I think we can definitely have much more meaningful conversations at the time we have if we think about the entire experience from the time they make the phone call to the time they come to your office, to the paperwork, to how we're greeting them and how we're making them comfortable and how we're giving them a whole bunch of education beforehand. So we send them a link to our website, yesmyballsart.com. We send them when they walk in and they're waiting in the room, there's all this information on what we're going to talk about. So I've already kind of started the education process. So when, when I'm in there, I'm just pretty kind of confirming and reaffirming and kind of offering my ears. So I have to type less and they have to talk more. So I think as an overall field, not just for this, I think we should definitely think about that experience and how can we optimize it. And I think the better experience they have, the less burnt out we're going to get as a profession. And you, you mentioned about the experience. Have you had problems? I mean, for example, for us in the office, we've been having a lot of turnovers in personnel, front office, MAs. How do you, I mean, and you're also a hospital employed. How do you deal with that with the hospital having your back in that sense? Because I'll give you the example. Right now, our lead MA, she's going to the float pool because she gets, they pay $3 more. And I mean, how the institution that supposedly wants to support you, but the system continues to give you or offers them better deals outside the office without le less responsibility. How can you compete with that? So, man, this is like a whole podcast in itself, but... It, um, it is, it is, but, but you bring no, no, a... No, no, but I think, no, but I yeah. think, I think if, yes. if we have the time, and I think it's worth the conversation. So what I'm about to say, not everyone will like, but here's the reality. Number one, your retention level, level in the office really comes down to your culture at the end of the day. So I'm proud to say we haven't lost anyone during this whole COVID crisis. People stuck through. I knew how they were, some were getting paid less, some were getting paid more. But when it came down to budget, I'm very hands-on with our admin team. I, you know, we work very well together. I've kind of learned, learned to kind of understand the whole, how the hospital works. It's a big entity. So I've kind of took a deep dive in like budgeting and when these meetings happen, when these decisions are made, kind of knowing, you know, what's the range that these people make? Okay, what are they doing? When can we ask? When can we not ask? So it makes me much smarter when I'm going in for negotiations. Now, not everyone may have that privilege or that desire to be that involved. But number one, people will take a less of a pay if they have the right structure and support. I think an employed model, sometimes it just the mistake physicians make is it's doctors versus the rest of the team and they're managed by admin and, you know, I'm just a doctor. I just do the health, you know, the clinical stuff. No, I mean, I think we all have to be active parts. So I try to make everyone, so I think you got to make everyone feel special and feel like there's no MA versus front desk versus nurse. I think everyone should feel that they're important and valued member. Number two, the way, and this is just our office, but the way we mitigate like loss of people, if that does happen, is we cross train everyone. So obviously, yes, there's some rules and regulations to what one person can do and another person can't. But if we cross-train everyone in the basic task, it's much easier because then someone can step up and fill in. The other thing is when it comes to like equipment and certain certain like day-to-day -day things that, you know, in one room, you know, the gloves are thrown here and the Tumi syringe are thrown somewhere else. We try to in every single room have like a standard, like this is where things go. So if you have like the basic standardized, so when equipment comes, it goes here and the rooms is this way these brochures are always in this rack on like row four, three. 
and it's it's a little sounds a little bit anal and we're not perfect at it no. but kind of like optimizing you know because i've done a lot of reading on like optimal workflows and how like cars are made or a, a production and how you know, even computer chips and all these things and what i've learned is all about the automation process and how can you automate it using humans <laughs> and you can automate it by providing a proper structure so i think the second thing to avoid like major disasters in your office is you know try to cross train people as best you can now maybe a little bit difficult to do but like you know if you take for an exam for an ma right so there's like we can only do this and the other people can only do this but if you look at their job description they can all answer phone calls you know like a patient doesn't want clinical stuff all the time like you can answer the phone call you may not be able to give medical advice or vice versa or rooming patients they may not be able to take the blood pressure but they can actually still room the patient and talk to the patient get the basic information that then i can clinically phone later so kind of figure out savvy tactics you know that way helps now the pay part is very difficult i think you know it's it's interesting you know you work at the other hospital i work at this hospital you know we always hear oh this person's going to your hospital and then we hear oh this person came from your hospital to our hospital there's definitely a game right now with you know people trying to make an extra buck or two and it's fine like hey go ahead and do it but sometimes you're selling your soul because you got to commit to two or three years and sometimes you're kind of chasing that sign on bonus i think it's best if you are worried about the pay like you know talk to your supervisor or talk to you know your doctor or as a doctor figure out how much they're getting paid like you'd be surprised like what the discrepancies could be and then fight for them when it comes to those pay scales and the last thing is i never talk about how much i make i never talk about productivity i never talk about rvus because then you know they just think oh you're just doing it for the money money money's right so then they start getting that process so i think again it's it's a multi-tiered conversation which you can definitely protect yourself by doing some simple things but then taking a deep dive in other things like you mentioned it's about culture And I'm lucky that my two MAs that I have had since I started still there, but at some point one of them will leave because she, she's young, she's very good, and the system provides for her to continue to grow in the in the ladder. But then the office pays for it, I guess. Like our supervisor right now is a rock star. She started off as an MA, so kind of like you know, what are the opportunities to grow in the office? Yeah. You know, I told you I tell my patients like I can't guarantee anything. I can give it to you my effort. So I tell the same thing to all the new hires like listen, if you want to leave, I'll write you a recommendation. I'll write you your recommendation. I want you to grow. And they're like, "Oh, I can grow." And and then they kind of don't look the other way because they're like, "Okay, I can always have the opportunity." But here's a little trick that people don't know is when you have someone in your coming in. So I actually try to interview as many people as I can that are coming in now. We've grown so much. We have like 20 team members now. It's hard to kind of keep track of it. But when HR calls, so I think this is something you got to tell people that are trying to work for you. When HR calls and they throw a number at you, it's a negotiation. And people don't know that. They think, okay, they're offering me X dollars. That's it. The reality is there's a scale. And so if you don't give them a counter offer, you know, you're not going to get something bigger. So obviously they're going to try to they don't try to lowball you, but they're going to try to see, you know, if you'll take the bait. It's kind of like when we get our physician contracts, right? You look at the first draft, you're like, okay, I'm a urologist, you know that, right? So yeah. you, know, you got to know that it's a negotiation so it doesn't matter if you're an MA or a front desk person like i mean if you're a physician out there and you're trying to get them in like let them know that you can negotiate with HR you know cuz they need you they need you way more than you need them when it comes to some of these jobs good so jamie like you said i mean this this can be a full and and it will be a full episode and we'll talk again at some point about branding and and all the other things that you're doing how to elevate yourself and 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 make yourself important in a system and go more from just not from the office go outside social media and i like brand yourself yeah but just for 30 seconds i want to say you yeah. can brand yourself and have all these 
online things, but do a Google search with your name at least once a month and see what's being posted about you or what's there about you. I found like pictures of me in high school. I'm like, whoa, like delete, delete, delete. (laughs) So once a month, you know, you're branding, but also make sure you're kind of shaving and grooming yourself once a month by checking your online profile because it's not always about what you're posting at that minute in time. Always go look back and and protect yourself. And last thing is, please follow me on LinkedIn. Like I think there's a lot of social media platforms. I think us as urologists, I mean, Twitter's great, blah, blah, blah. Like, like I think LinkedIn is very, very important, very, very strong. And I think that's where we can all really come together professionally. So I think that is my go-to platform right now. So LinkedIn, perfect. Yeah. So, so definitely follow Dr. Brambat and definitely check, go back and, and do what uh, Jamin is doing. Check your, go yourself. And especially more after being on a weekend in New Orleans, you know, don't know what happened. If you can't find your name in a website called YouPorn, then you probably got yeah, yeah. to call a lawyer. <laughs> okay, so Yamin, thanks for being in Backtable. We'll talk again at some point and talk about more other stuff that you're doing. Thank you guys. And hey, strong work with the Backtable team here. You guys are doing an amazing job. I love listening to your podcasts and um, they get better and better every listen I do. So kudos to you guys for being advocates for us in urology and our patients um, with the messages that you're resonating through social media and the podcast. So thank you guys. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at underscore Backtable on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable is hosted by Aditya Bagrodia and Jose Silva. Our audio team lead is Kieran Gannon with support from Caleb Hodson and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Ishan Sangwan and Medavi Patwardhan. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.